Welcome to the podcast of Herbal Tales. My name is Annette Breur. I am a Dutch storyteller and I tell about the history, symbolism and use of plants. In this podcast, I invite guest speakers to share with us how they work with plants or their knowledge on plants. And in this episode, I invited James Bing. He started in autumn 2020 as a curator at the Delft Botanical Gardens in the Netherlands. This episode has been recorded November 2020. James shared with us not only what he does in daily life as a curator, but also his vision on the protection of nature and the importance of taxonomy. Some extra attention will be given in this episode to the Hamamelis, the witch hazels. I'm quite excited about the plants that James shares with us also about the changes to be made in the Delft Botanical Gardens, such as the renewal of glass house and the creation of a seed chamber to admire all the seeds that they have in their collection. So come to Delft and enjoy this podcast. Welcome, James. Can you please introduce yourself and um, tell us a bit about how you came to be interested in plants, actually? Yeah, when I was uh, young, my, my grandmother used to take me to botanic gardens. But until I started studying biology, there was no much biology connection. I was traveling a lot when I was younger. So I did a lot of backpacking around uh, the Pacific and Australia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, when I finished some very large trips, that's when I realized that, yeah, I need to study something because I can't just keep traveling without a purpose. And I thought, yeah, I like plants. And when you're in Fiji and you think this and you think, wow, look at all the, the strange plants which grow there, you, you think, okay, I'll study botany, tropical botany. And uh, yeah, I saw there was a, a degree in tropical ecology in Aberdeen University in Scotland. And so, yeah, I eventually went to Aberdeen University and studied there. And when I was in Aberdeen, I got interested in kind of the taxonomy, the systematic side of how plants are arranged. And then I studied in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh for one year. And then following that, I did my PhD in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. After finishing in Kew, I came to Leiden to work in Naturalis for on and off for about four or five years. And so, yeah. What can you tell about the, your first months as a conservator in this garden? <laughs> like, what, what is daily your daily work um, here? So this is my first job as a, in English we would say a curator. Yeah, different gardens have got different specializations. So in this garden in Delft, we specialize in the costaceae and the hamamelidaceae, the witch hazels, the gingers. So we have the national collections here in Delft for the, the Netherlands mm -hmm. and uh, they have to be documented properly. We have to get new collections inside. But what I find in my first few months is that, yeah, if, if the record, records are not very up to date or clean, you spend a lot of time in the first few months or even years just cleaning what is here, or finding out what's here, because many things are unidentified or some things are misidentified. One of the things I do is, the moment is as I'm mapping where all the species are in the garden. I start with the trees because the trees are here and you can see them and they don't move. Herbaceous plants, things like daffodils, 
I can't map these yet because I have to wait till January or February till yeah they, for the season yeah for the season yeah and then they can move each year yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah the idea at the moment is to map all the woody plants and then the herbaceous plants in the spring I take material from all of these like leaves or flowers and I scan them to put into the database too so if I can't identify it myself you can send it to another specialist in Australia or or in America who works on this this particular group of plants yeah. and they can help identifications as well. Yeah. But yes, it's a lot of record keeping because you have thousands and thousands of species here. We want yeah. to know if they're useful, we want to know are they threatened yeah. because a botanic garden's role is to try and collect uh, threatened species to conserve them here. So if they go extinct in the wild or become threatened in the wild, we can try and reintroduce them from botanic gardens into the natural habitats. Yeah. So one of the, that's one of the roles here. We have a red list area here of Dutch plants, kind of rare threatened Dutch plants, provide a backup of if things start going crazy with climate change or or too much urbanisation or anything like this. Yeah. Are there, I don't know if you know that by heart, but are there any uh, witch hazel species that are threatened? Uh, there's only five witch hazel species. Sorry. And we have them all here, so we have the national collection here. But there's about dozens and dozens of cultivars of witch hazels too, mm. because people like the different colours of the, the leaves when they fall in autumn, and some people like the, the different colours, sometimes they're reds and yellows and oranges. Um, so we're trying to collect as many cultivars as possible for the witch hazels. But generally they're not too threatened, because they are each each species is quite widespread in its native in its natural distribution. Mm -hmm. So one is native to large portions of uh, southern USA. So it's very unlikely it'll be threatened with extinction. Yeah. But I think most of the plants we try and conserve against extinction are things like uh, glasshouse plants, usually tropical plants, because these are the where the, the, the habitats are more threatened. Yeah. Yeah, and for those cultivars you mentioned, you work together with nurseries? Uh, in some ways, yes. Yeah. So for the Hamamelis, there's a, there's a nursery in Bosco, mm -hmm. which uh, specializes in Hamamelis, and we get a lot of material from them, and which is nice because it builds up our own collection. A botanic garden should never have too many cultivars. You should only really have cultivars of national collections, things like hammermelis that we have here, or strange uh, fruiting trees. So if you have a strange type of apple mm -hmm. that was cultivated 200 years ago, you know, these are interesting to have. So the idea is that the Botanic Gardens has more wild plants yeah. with this conservation, education and uh, these kind of elements to it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the Hamamelis, the Hamamelidaceae, the witch hazels. And witch hazel is actually a bit of a name that can need some explication because actually it's not family of the hazel. But the leaves may look a bit like hazel leaves. That's why probably why it's been called like that. But the flowers look very different. It's also sometimes called winter bloom because they do flower in winter and the flowers have a lovely scent, typical scent to it as well. 
They can be, most of them are yellow, flowering yellow, and some of them are red, and indeed it depends on the cultivar as well, how they look exactly, of course. But then the um, witch hazel is interesting because in uh, America, it's traditionally been used already for very probably very very long to treat skin conditions so there's made a distillation of the leaves and bark and applied topically on the skin to treat skin conditions by the native americans uh, but still today it's quite a common thing to do and uh, there are distillation factories for that so the witch hazel and its cultural uses and then the part of in the name witch of course, our first association would be with witches, but the etymology says that it comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, wick, wick, and that means flexible or bending, lively. It comes from the flexible properties of the branches of the bush of the witch hazel. And actually, it has been used, those branches, the wood, to detect water sources traditionally. So then the branch would bend down to the ground, to the soil, if there would be a source under the earth. Then, last but not least, I would like to uh, recite for you a poem by Elizabeth Aker Allen, a 19th century American poet, about the witch hazel. It's only the last part of the poem that I will uh, recite for you. Not even the smallest leaf or hint of green is mingled with its sprays. But every slender stem and twig is seen, haloed with flickerings of yellow blaze. What wizard, wise in spells of drugs and gums, with weird divining rod, conjures this luminous loveliness that comes, as if by magic from the frozen sod? Fearless witch hazel, braver than the oak, that dares not bloom till spring, thus to defy the frost's benumbing stroke, with challenge of November blossoming. And yet it has an airy, delicate grace, denied all other flowers, and lights the gloom as some beloved face dawns on the dark of melancholy hours. Miraculous shrub that does in frost and blight smiles all undismayed and scatters from thy wands of golden light a sudden sunshine in the chilly glade. Sprite of New England forests, he was wise, who gave thee thy quaint name. As threading wind-stripped woods with old surprise, he first beheld their waving fan of flame. What do you like most so far about this? position you're in now. I can pick plants without asking for permission. Usually <laughs> when I go to other botanic gardens I always ask, have to ask the curator there and here I can just collect my own plants and image them or document them without asking too many permissions. So that's the nicest thing to do. But it's also, you know, when you have worked with plants for many years, now you want to shape a garden or shape a collection in a certain way. And now I, I've got the opportunity to try and do that. When I came here, there was a very large seed collection. I estimated yesterday there was probably 
2,500 seed tubes, plus there's a lot not in seed tubes. Mm-hmm. And when you see this collection, it's amazing because some of it's from Indonesia, some of it's from North America, it's from China. It's got all the diversity of the world essentially covered in it. And it's just kept in dusty drawers. So one of the things I'm trying to do here is open this up to the public next year. So there's going to be a seed room which is going to be open every, say, Wednesday and Saturday in the summer, every week. And people can see the diversity for themselves. And when you work somewhere like this, I can try and make this. I hear you very much like to reach out to the public and yeah. to everybody. I, I think uh, a lot of us worry about plant blindness because we can't connect very well with the public. And that's why maybe there's less people interested in plants. And or people just ignore plants that, you know, when you're eating your dinner every night, you know, you're eating 20 plant species sometimes, you know, you're having your pepper, your lentils, or, your, you know, when you accumulate this, you're eating 20, 30 species and people have lost that connection. Yeah. And, you know, as, as somebody working with plants, you want to bring that connection back again because, yeah, this is the natural order of how we've evolved. We are, we should be connected. How to find the best way of connecting humans and plants or and nature is, is difficult. We just have to try every different way possible. I think. I'm also trying that, but via the cultural uh, yeah, yeah. side. It's, it's, the it's, yeah, you, yeah, but the, the origins of botany started with medicinal plants because people, obviously, in the, in the past only were interested in plants if they could use the plants. And so, yeah, traditionally, yeah, it's the cultural side, the medicinal side, the the ethnobotany side, this is yeah. the strongest connection with people. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to get people excited about 10 new species in New Caledonia on top of a mountain which are threatened with extinction because most people can't eat them or use them or anything. But yeah. essentially, we are the guardians of nature now. We're here to protect it and conserve it. And we should be protecting it for the protection's sake, for, for biodiversity's sake. and. Not because we can eat it ourselves and use it, but maybe humans have got to take a different role in how we see nature. Yeah, not like it's only serving us. Yes, yeah. yeah. But maybe, yeah. but also maybe it serves us in ways we don't know. Mm-hmm. Once you take out species from a, a habitat, you don't know how it's going to affect the rest of the habitat. People say if you take away wildflowers, you lose the bees, and then they're not going to pollinate the crops. And so if you lose this cycle of things, yeah, you don't know how it's going to affect us in the long run. Yeah. So, yeah. ideally we protect as much as possible, as soon as possible. Yeah. There are also people who say um, a specific species will uh, get extinct, but nature in the end will survive us as a human species. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Um, when I was studying biology in Aberdeen, one of the, my professors there, served on the the government climate change panel in the UK. He was one of the advisors to the government. And he would always say things that uh, climate change is, is not going to destroy nature. It's just going to change it from what we, we've known for the last 500 years or 1,000 years. So all the plants we, we, we've, we're used to seeing and they're all the inter, you know, all these links in, in nature we've seen between this pollinator and this plant these will be changed and what we have in the next 500 years from 
we sort ourselves out with climate change, it will be very different. And so culturally, it's probably going to be very interesting because all the records, it's going to be historical how we connected with nature in the past. And it's going to be very different in the future because it's different species. Yeah. Different species will survive and do very well. Some will become extinct. And yeah, it's, it's just going to be different. And I was wondering because Delft is a, it's a technical university. Yes. Does it make, do you feel that in the Hortus here as well? Is it, is, are there different collaborations and proje projects because of that? The, the Botanic Gardens is over 100 years old now. Originally there was a lot of work done on oil plants and uh, fibrous plants, medicinal plants and these kind of very technical plants. Plants came from the uh, Dutch East Indies, so from Indonesia. They came to Delft. People here were working to see if the oils were useful for as a product. That was when Delft did a lot of agriculture as well. But then there was kind of a split after independence for Indonesia, where Wageningen took a lot more, a bigger role in the agricultural side. Mm. And so Delft lost a bit of the technical part of its, of its history there. And so there was a few decades after the Second World War where the garden was very much unsure of what was happening. It kind of merged again in the last 20 years where there's a lot more technical uh, projects being done in the garden from students in the university. And yeah, I think it has a very big role to play and it also has a big historical role in Delft because there's strong connections between the garden and companies like DSM, which is a very large employer in Delft. You also have uh, Calvé, the yeah, from uh, peanut, butter. peanut butter, yeah, yeah. And DSM makes yeasts, yeah, I think, yeah. 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 So all these had, had their kind of origins from research done in the garden. All right. So there's a very strong historical connection with these companies and also yeah. history and I think it's kind of been lost a little bit in the post-war years at the moment we're trying to kind of bring this back again so next year there's going to be exhibitions and connections between uh, societies and uh, groups connected to these companies to make proper displays and there's going to be a new glass house education glass house appearing next year to try and tell this story better and basically a technical university means you have an advantage over other gardens because you can do very strange and weird things here, which you can't do in Leiden Hortus or in Amsterdam Hortus. So, yeah, I think the future's good. And your specialization, the PhD you did, was tropical flora? Yeah, so I did, uh, I did my PhD on the taxonomy of Syzygia, which is the clove genus. Ah, yeah. And uh, it's the largest tree genus in the world. There's about 1,200 species currently accepted and described, but there's probably about another three to 400 undescribed species. Oh. And I worked on the African and Madagascan species for my PhD. And the reason why I came to Leiden is because they have the best collection from Southeast Asia. And that's where there's 800 or 900 species or 1,000. Mm. So I've been slowly trying to identify and document those. So yeah, I still do that. I'm also a generalist bot uh, botanist. When I was studying for my PhD, I realized that when you study such a, a small section of botany or biology, you only know about your specialization. So you can walk around the botanic gardens and you see a magnolia flowering and you don't know anything about it because you never work on this. And this is the problem I think these days with when people do do PhDs, they specialize so finely 
And when you talk about something generally, you have no knowledge because it's not in your educational background. So I started to, to teach botany for undergraduate students and master's students in many botanic gardens in the UK. And then I ended up writing a book about all the genera and families of the world for flowering plants. A guide, a visual guide, a book about all the genera of all the flowering plants in the world. This is the one I was published in 2014. All right. And for the last six years I've been taking a lot more pictures and making it more visual because I think people get scared of plants. When you go in a botanic garden or in a forest, you have this green wall and you just see green. What's this and what's that? People have, there's too much, there's too much green. And I think if you visually see what you have and you can understand a bit of the, the patterns in nature, you can start identifying things quite quickly. So yeah, the idea is to have uh, yeah, about 15,000 pictures visually represented similar to, to this, yeah, post, to this poster. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. And focusing on the flowers, huh? Yes. And the fl flowers. Because this, yeah. this contains the details of, of the evolution of, of, of flowering plants. Because usually when plants are organized or classified, they're classified by order and family to genus and species. Usually the, the flowers of each of these groupings is, is similar. So the, the, the flowers of a, the Malvasi family usually have similar characteristics. So if you can show these visually, it makes it easier for a non-specialist or a beginner to like, ah, oh, these all look similar, or oh, they must be in the Malvasi family because they look like on this page or yeah. this section. Yeah, like what you mentioned to recognize the patterns. Yes. And yeah. get less uh, impressed maybe by yeah. all the... Because it's big, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's about 500,000 flowering plant species, and about 15,000 genera, and 416 plant families, flowering plant families. Yeah. So if you go in the glass houses, I think Sansevierias. It's very rare mm -hmm. to find a Sansevieria flower close up. Mm -hmm. Usually everybody takes a picture like this, or it's flowering. And then you want mm -hmm. to Google Sansevieria flower, looking for something high resolution. Yeah. There's nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I scan That's everything. That's the things you do. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And so every week there's always something strange flowering up, which is nice to see. Yeah. But it's also a bit stressful because you think, oh, I need to go scan this, I've got to do this, this, this. You lose half a day or a day just going around yeah. documenting. Yeah. Even if it's a small garden, there's a nature goes there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is why winter is good because outside everything is nearly empty, so it's... Yeah. It gives you a bit of time to calm down a bit and then springs when it gets all busy again. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, talking about flowers, I think quite some people feel attracted to flowers. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think, yeah, flowers have many shapes and forms and sizes. And I think there's a lot, usually an obsession with orchids because there's such a, an array of colours and textures of the flower surface and there's different smells yeah people like yeah. yeah but it's also I think going back centuries essentially that people have always had a connection with nature we've, we've emerged from nature and we've kind of lost some of the connection as we move to urban areas and live in cities but 
when people get stressed, they're always encouraged to go and engage with nature again because this is where we were originally emerged from. And so yeah, when people see flowers, it's hard to describe what they think or what they're feeling. But I think it's it, there's something in the human psyche where we just need to have this connection with, with nature in some mm. form. And obviously when it's nice and colourful and, and pretty, yeah. it's easier. Yeah, they're also yeah. The, they are made by the plant to attract attention yes, exactly. as well, right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, they were attracting a pollinator or a seed disperser. Yeah. But yeah, they were attracting people to engage again with nature. You also mentioned um, that you were um, describing many new species. Yes. How does that work uh, You, if a plant looks different from the other, it's already a new species, or how, how does it work? Um, I think I think the question should be is what is a species? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the problem today is we really still don't know what a species is. Because when people do a lot more molecular work or DNA work, you realize that what we thought was one species is potentially many, many species. Traditionally when people describe species, they would go to a herbarium or a museum where there's lots of dried collections of a group in particular and they would compare their new plant with all the other plants and if they find this new plant that you've collected is very different you could argue it's a new species based on the morphology this one has big leaves whereas all the other ones have small leaves in this group of plants uh, and so that's typically how most 90% of all new species are described are decided based on the morphology Ideally, we have molecular data for all these species in the world, but in reality, we have this information for less than one percent. Wow! Because it costs money to do yeah. to do molecular work, it takes yeah. time, yeah. and we essentially don't have time and money to wait thirty, sixty years to describe everything mm -hmm. in this way. Because yeah, forests are disappearing very fast. To take an example is the the Solomon Islands in the Pacific region. There's never been a flora published for the Solomon Islands, but it's very species rich. Yeah, at the moment the Chinese are uh, chopping a lot of the forest down for wood. And so when you see the maps from 10 years ago and the maps from today, you can see that the forest cover is disappearing very, very fast. And we still don't know what's actually in these forests, what species are there. So we're losing our biodiversity very quickly. and. Yeah, we need to describe and document these, the diversity on the on the planet quickly too, and yeah, if it's done in this very old-fashioned way of uh, the morphology-based, this has big leaves and this has small leaves. This could be a potentially new species. We have to work with this system because it's quick. We know how it works, uh, but ideally, we have molecular data for all yeah, this. Yeah, because this you would think it can have also small leaves because it grows in it different area or, or next year maybe it will have bigger leaves. But yeah. yeah, this is yeah, this yeah. is what happens too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you know this strange plant you have occurs on the top of a mountain at 3,000 meters and it has different flowers and different leaves to something that grows on a lowlands at near sea level, the, the, the thinking is it's probably a different species because it's adapted to a different habitat. It's morphologically very different, so the genetic 
exchange between the two populations is unlikely mm -hmm. and so you have to think that it's probably different but yeah. it's based on the evidence we have now if we have all this molecular data the evidence changes and then interpretations change but yeah there's I think there's an average 2,000 new plant species described every year this has been a kind of a steady flow for the last 20-30 years yeah. and it's estimated there's about 60 to 80,000 new species still to describe and they've already been collected and they're already deposited in herbariums worldwide but the problem today is that there's no body actually going to work on them in herbariums because usually biology studies today usually working on genetics of, of crops or, or all these kind of things and the actual biodiversity side in herbariums is considered a very old school so mm -hmm. nobody's doing it but it's essential because it's the basic units of, of life on earth or the basic units of science mm -hmm. we, can't, we can't say oh let's, let's grow this drought resistant rice when you find there's all these other rice species potentially which are undescribed maybe they've got these drought resistant properties already we don't know yeah. if we haven't documented them yeah. And, yeah. and yeah that's the problem can uh, give a call to maybe uh, biology <laughs> students to focus more on, on that kind of research. Yeah, ideally, yes. I think yeah. it's, it's good to do that as part of your education. If you're going to study biology, it's good to, good to do some taxonomy, not just of plants, but of insects or, or bacteria or all these other things, because mm -hmm. it's good for the body of education side for their studies, but also you're actually adding something to science too, which... We need as many people as we can get, essentially. To, yeah, to do a little bit of the work, yeah. yeah. I was reading uh, some weeks ago, I think it was a Dutch newspaper that said that botany uh, has become a less and less popular study. Yes. Uh, and I was a bit surprised by that because I know so many people around me who like plants, but well, yeah. it's a different thing than studying botany, of yeah. course. But why do you think that is? Um, I think it, there's a few reasons, but I think one is when people produce botanical publications, it's usually very technical and there's very few pictures. It's usually uh, lots and lots of writing and text and that kind of turns people off. Mm -hmm. And that's why one of the things I try and do is have the kind of the visual side, because if you can, if you can visualize what it looks like or you can visualize some diversity, it, it gets people more excited and I think it's also when you study biology uh, you're competing with zoology you know zoology is very popular because they watch David Attenborough programs as children and they all want to go and save panda bears and mm. and elephants and there's enough people doing that already and when you look at the plants or the insects there's very few actual people working on it it just needs to become trendy again if it becomes trendy yeah. then people will study it's also about money. If there's money in the in the in the discipline, if there's jobs, people will study it. But if there's no jobs, for example, in the Netherlands, there's very few botany positions, which is the problem because you have such a huge tradition of plant horticultural botany research. It's one of the biggest producers of exporters of pla uh, plant material. You know, you, you export orchids, you export peppers, and a lot of it goes to the UK. Mm. And so you're big exporters of plants. And plant materials and yeah when you see how many people study traditional botany in the, in the Netherlands it's very few very few 
one or two students a year. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah, there's there's few opportunities yeah. for progression, career progression. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's the same in the UK and America as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We hope that the botanical gardens can open again soon. So yeah, come to Delft. See the seed room. Yeah, spring next year is a good time to come and see a changed garden, hopefully with new glass houses and uh, seed rooms and various other things opening. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Thank you, James. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed. And if you're interested in having a look at the visual guide of flowering plants around the world that James described, it's available on Amazon and digitally on Google Play. I'll put the links to it in the description of this episode. And yeah, don't hesitate if you're if it's possible for you to come and visit the Delft Botanical Gardens. And also have a look at the website of Herbal Tales, herbaltales.com, to see what's coming up, uh, events and uh, some more storytelling about plants. Bye bye, have a nice week.